I wish I were a pilot in a podcast. I wish I had a something in a podcast. I wish I had the bunt and a coal ass and carry portable speakers with Bob Grass. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a something something. Focus on myself. Every time I wish, I think I better wish for health because. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. At least I sort of understand it. Dibla dibla on all that stuff. Hey guys! <laughs> I am on vacation in Mexico, evidently not speaking fluent Spanish, and therefore I am away from my soundboard, my intro music, and all of my sound effects. So I hope you can bear with me through this low production value episode of Bad Faith. Also, one that is occurring earlier in the day than normal, but obviously I don't want to interrupt my evening activities with a dinner time call. I know that some people are disadvantaged by this timing, but hopefully some of the folks that ordinarily can't join in around 8 p.m. Eastern when we normally Eastern when we normally have these are able to avail themselves of this unconventional timing. And I anticipate this is going to be a smaller room and a shorter room than usual, but maybe we can get some fresh faces in the mix. Apologies for my little acapella rendition there, but let's get right to it. Today, I had the enormous pleasure of speaking to Margaret Kimberly of the Black Agenda Report about a whole range of topics, including what's next for the left, the role that uh, the Black voting bloc plays and potentially decoupling from the Democratic Party, what to do with this electoral season that's coming up, whether we like it or not, de-dollarization, BRICS, and the economic shifts that are happening because of the increasingly empowered global South, and on and on and on. And I'm very interested to hear what you guys thought of today's chat. So let's start at the front of the queue. Those of you who are familiar with how this works knows that I take one from the front, one randomly selected from somewhere in the line. So don't despair if you're a tour at the back. You might just get lucky. David, what is on your mind tonight? Hey, Blake. I am glad you're having fun in Mexico. Wish we could all be taking a vacation. <laughs> um. I wish that for everybody as well. We are working toward that as one of our substantive economic goals here. What's on your mind though tonight? <laughs> Not much. I didn't get a chance to see the um, or listen to the episode from today, but um, I was wondering if I could chat a little bit about the last episode, the last two episodes you did with Shama. Yeah, of course. So uh, I took several notes because I can't, I, and I don't want to read through all of them or anything like that. But I, the 
let me just start off with the, the one question that I kind of boiled it down to after listening to everything. Because I have to be honest, listen to Shama. Like, I, I respect and, and love the work that she has been doing. I really do feel like she's one of the few people that we can put our faith in. But the more I listened to her talk, the less I was, the less I wanted to go check out um, uh, Workers Strike Back. And, and it's just because it felt like she was arguing a point that she didn't really believe in when she was having the discussion with you. And so I guess my question is, as a comms person, and that's, that's what you do, is there an effective narrative in which we can simply say, hey, people, there is this value in strategically voting for somebody like RFK Jr. or Marianne to put pressure on this two-party system to force the Democratic Party into having these conversations like them, like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party being beholden to Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman and Raytheon, mm-hmm. as opposed to being you know, beholden to the American citizens. But... With that being the case, don't put your faith in RFK Jr. or Marianne and thinking that they're actually going to create the radical change that's so necessary. Mm-hmm. So it seems like she continued to argue that that wasn't worth it, and that just seems disingenuous to me. Am I? Am I just? Am I just not hearing what she's saying? Is she making well, a piece of argument? I mean, I obviously disagree with her. I wouldn't. I might not use the word disingenuous. I might say that. I think that she is, um, if I if I were to give a, a good faith reading and really try to steal man her perspective, I think part of what goes unspoken is a real sense that there is a risk. Well, she said, she said this out loud. It's not unspoken. She, there's a real risk to further disillusioning the left by um, uh, presenting to them, convinc- convincing them, pretending that. Um, the candidates, one, have a real likelihood of winning, and two, that even if they were to win by some miracle, that they would stick the landing, that they wouldn't bend the knee and compromise in ways that we've seen squad members compromise and even now Bernie compromise. Um, And my rejoinder to that is that that's a real risk. I completely appreciate why people say I don't want to door knock and give money, especially when I don't have very much money the way I did in 2016 and 2020 because of the disappointments of Bernie Sanders. And if you listen closely, I never ever encourage people to donate or spend their time because I really do respect people who gave so much when they had so little mm-hmm. and have been betrayed by these candidates. However, to me, the burden of voting in a primary is very different from those other kinds of obligations. And I do think it is possible. And in fact, I think desirable to message to folks that they should take a different posture to these candidates than they did to Bernie, but still strategically, not because you believe in Democrats, but because you want to send a message to Biden and you want to be as adversarial as possible and use the tools at your disposal to be as adversarial as possible to the Democratic Party to cast a vote for the candidates that the Democratic Party obviously sees as a threat to its dominion over the broad left. And I think it is quite possible to message that very clearly. If you're concerned about disillusioning people, then don't disillusion them. Just be very clear in your messaging. But for whatever reason, um, folks seem to believe that it is impossible to vote in a primary. Again, I think the journal is a very different scenario. But people seem to think it's impossible to vote in a primary without endorsing the institution of itself in a way that is some way detrimental to the left. It's not, I would like to hear someone put into words 
how a vote for a candidate who is so obviously making the Democratic Party upset is enriching the Democratic Party in any way. I'm not really hearing that argument. I'm hearing arguments about why people are disappointed about putting in the work for Bernie, but that's not the same thing as a different approach that is being advocated for in this moment. I mean, even to 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 kind of still to take that a step further, even when she offered up that same defense that you know she said that well Bernie was a different situation, and to me what I was hearing it was like oh well you know Bernie created such a, a, a such a groundswell of people we couldn't help but you know we couldn't help but put our our, our uh, support behind him, mm. but then. But then that also begs the question of like, okay, so, but then you said that Bernie's the exception. However, we see that people like our, and, and, and quite frankly, I don't know who, I mean, I don't know who I would vote for. I'm not trying to argue for RFK Jr., but you've made a mm-hmm. very compelling argument that it's not a bad thing to at least be having the conversation and at least be seeing if people are open to the idea of supporting a candidate that has such a history of, uh, um, what is it, environmentalism, as Mm -hmm. well as uh, uh, the anti-war stance that he has taken, if, if only that pertains to, you know, the Ukraine situation. I mean, there's no downside to spending the Ukrainian money here or the money that we've promised to Ukraine here in America. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I I guess, not that you haven't made that very clear, I guess I still don't understand how she continued to argue that Bernie was the exception, but yet people like RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson can't also create that same groundswell and it would be worth the time and energy. I felt like, oh, oh, go ahead. I mean, I, I agree with her that in terms of like, Bernie was unique in in terms of having been in the in Congress for so long and being so consistent and adversarial to the Democratic Party, despite him having you know doing it from such a high profile position, that his record is really unimpeachable and that there that engenders a certain kind of trust that people don't have in Marianne or RFK Jr. Bernie was a unique once in a generation candidate. I think all of that is true, but to the extent that she was kind of framing Bernie as, um, you know, not not vulnerable to the same criticism that, you know, he's going to bend the knee. I mean, we mm-hmm. saw Bernie run in 2016 mm-hmm. and then bend the knee. So mm-hmm. unlike Marianne and RFK Jr., we know, well, Marianne did, you know, ultimately endorse Bernie. So let's take Marianne out of it because we do also have an example of her running and bending the knee. But RFK Jr., we don't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how can you say it was legitimate for me to get behind Bernie in 2020 when we fully saw him betray the progressive movement in 2016 and, shut down our revolution and all of those things, but not want to give RFK Jr. the same benefit of the doubt. And then even if I'm saying don't give him the same benefit of the doubt, again, I'm not asking you to mobilize in the same way, but like don't mobilize, but just cast the ballot. And to the extent that there's this argument that's like, well, there was no groundswell of support. I got to say it is really unnerving to me to see so many people who are part of that groundswell of support, not just sit this one out, but actively campaign against Marianne and RFK Jr. It's like, how can you expect there to be a groundswell of support when all the very people that help to contribute to, the, contribute to that groundswell and popularize these policies and these ideas are not only just keeping quiet and minding their business and organizing and doing whatever they want to do, but actively trying to thwart the campaigns of the only left candidates at all left candidates in the race in a way that I gotta say seems only to benefit Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. I don't get. I don't see how it benefits the left to make your whole personality hating Marianne Williamson. I very much see how it benefits Joe Biden. Right. And when MSNBC co-hosts 
and so-called leftists are sounding very similar in their message. I don't know. It rubs me the wrong way. I mean, especially even when you have like, you know, Bernie Sanders himself. I, I saw the, um, oh, I can't think of his name. I'm blanking. The guy who does the great clips from Fox. Um, I can't think uh, of his Clips name. from Fox? Yeah, he does. Uh, he's in the chat, actually. Uh, Case, Case Study QB. Oh, Case Study. He does them from yes, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, but um, he, he posted, you know, Bernie and uh, the other day talking to, mm-hmm. I can't think of that guy's name, but on CNN, talking about- Chris Wallace, you know, yeah. Yes, and basically Bernie was, it felt like, don't get me wrong, he was still doing his typical, you know, anti-billionaire shtick, which most of us in the chat can get behind, but there's clearly this air of defending or running cover for Biden, like, and saying things- that he doesn't really back up saying that he's moved to the left. And it's like, well, no, he, he hasn't. <laughs> yeah. I, that's what I'm saying. Like I, I watched the interview. I think I tweeted about it. It was very disappointing. Um, Bernie was asked something about um, something about either why he wasn't successful or something in, in the last rounds. And he said nothing about our, a DNC rigging. He said nothing about how bad it is that they're not allowing debate. He said nothing about how anti-democratic it was. I mean, these are opportunities. That, to me, the whole point of someone like Bernie or someone like the squad is to make the case for the left, illustrate the limitations in the system, the way that it's corrupt, and draw a contrast between what a left world looks like and what the Democratic Party looks like. And even if you accept, okay, he's not going to bring on the revolution, he's not going to be like burn it all down, at very least, I see I see there still to be value in having access to those news programs where you call out the Democratic Party. And when he fails to do that, it's very disappointing. Now, I feel the same way about Marianne and JFK. Both of them were very strong anti-corruption, anti-Democratic Party in their announcement speeches. I don't like when they say things about how much they're friendly with Joe Biden. I didn't like when JFK, uh, sorry, RFK Jr. said that. Like, and, and those are missed opportunities to draw contrasts, but at other times they do draw contrasts, right? Yeah. Marianne Williamson is the only one with is running on Medicare for all right now. The only one who's going to have a chance of keeping that conversation alive or asking why Joe Biden in the middle of this public health crisis that we're just emerging from, he has completely dropped the ball. Why he doesn't provide free health care the way he can by executive order to the people of East Palestine. Why it is that he uh, hasn't given the railroad workers by executive order sick days the way he absolutely has the possibility of doing. Like those are things that only Marianne Williamson or RFK Jr. have the ability to bring up. And as long as they continue to bring up some portion of the things that they can bring up, I see it as a net value to the left. And that's not good enough maybe to go knock doors and give your hard-earned money when you don't have a lot of money. I completely conceive that. But I do think, given the relatively low bar of voting, especially the absentee, et cetera, then I think that that's what the left should be arguing for, a strategic primary vote against Joe Biden. Then I think that's probably what was so frustrating about the, the, the episode. And, and when I say frustrating, it was a great episode. I just think that was the, what was so frustrating for me about, about Shama's argument. And now maybe you can tell me when you guys talk off camera, I mean, talk, you know, off camera, um, if, if she, uh, ever made like, uh, a point about, cause I, I didn't hear it or I didn't take it. Or I didn't get it from the episode. If what, what would her strategy be? As opposed to, I know she's talking about, you know, building a third party movement entirely outside the two party system, but, and, you know, 
listening to Sad, uh, Savvy Sad's uh, show the other day with Kim Iverson. If you haven't seen that, mm-hmm. it was really good. But Kim made a very good point about how the, the political landscape actually is pretty ripe for a new party in this moment to mm-hmm. come about with these with, with these candidates that are currently running. So did she, at any point during your conversation with her or back and forth, or can you extrapolate from your conversations with her what her what she would suggest we be doing if she doesn't think that you know at least the strategic voting for marianne what we should we be doing to actually bring about this third party because i just don't see it happening i mean i'm all for a third party i'm all for doing mutual aid but again prices are very high people are working overtime people are struggling people aren't going to have the energy to go door knocks in some in many places so i mean did she give us any or did she give you any kind of idea of what she would rather us be putting our energy towards since she clearly thinks the strategy of a strategic vote isn't worth it, doesn't have the merit. So there was no, you know, additional off the record conversation or anything like that. I, I, but I similarly feel the frustration that if, if there was some argument that, you know, what I'm advocating for is mutually exclusive to something that I would agree is more beneficial, like committing to a third party effort, voting for a third party candidate. Like if there were third party primaries happening right now, I would say, okay, yeah, I understand why you wouldn't want to give up your opportunity to vote in a third party primary as a registered green or what have you to vote in the Democrat primary, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you can make an argument for why it would be important to make sure that the best candidate is coming out of your third party. However, that's just not happening. And it's very confusing. Like, people are asking. Like, I, I'm getting a lot of straw man arguments. Oh, you want us to give up everything? You want us to give our money to? You want us to door knock? You want us to sacrifice? Like, I literally have never said any of that. Quite to the contrary. Like, I was the one. I was the one having all those candidates on last year, like uh, Amy Vieja and et cetera, and having really heartfelt conversations with them about how we all collectively agreed that what they were trying to do probably wouldn't pan out and that they were working class candidates who were wasting all of their personal money honestly on races that the democratic party was shutting them out on out of and and you know to get into a party where they're not we're not going to have very much impact like I, that's what's been really frustrating to me it's like i've been working so fucking hard and mm-hmm. everyone's like acting like i haven't been the one like i'm not trying to say like i have been the one that established that narrative me mm-hmm. i'm the one who thinks that and mm-hmm. i'm not departing from that in the least all I'm telling you is that strategically, I think primaries are different from generals and your, your non-vote isn't helping the left. Right. Like t- you, you have to explain to me why not voting in the democratic primary advantages the left. How does that advantage the left? I agree. I mean, like, what, what, like is, the democratic party is not going to say, oh, wow, the primary turnout is low. Therefore we need to think twice about running a candidate like Joe Biden. no. They know nobody likes Joe Biden. They see the polls and primary turnout is always low because Americans are disaffected. Yep. So what could shock the conscience of the Democratic Party is if they actually have to put on a competitive phrase because someone like JFK, sorry, I keep saying that, RFK Jr. is already getting 20% of the vote a week after he declared. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine if it were 30%. Imagine if it was 40%. Imagine if there's a place where Biden actually feels politically threatened in a Democratic primary with someone who the media hasn't even acknowledged as running. That to me is so obviously good for the left. 
It's an indictment of the Democratic Party's rigging of elections. It harkens back to what they did in 2016, nominating a historically unpopular candidate in a way that got us Donald Trump. It's an indictment of the DNC machine and provokes a conversation about what we learned from the lawsuit about how they have no obligation to host a fair primary. You know, and it gives us an opportunity to get media attention to people like, again, RFK Jr.'s uh, platform isn't as developed as Marianne. But for someone like Marianne, who for all of the faults, like legitimate faults about, you know, the foreign policy thing, which I know would mean to minimize, is like, do we not care about Medicare for all anymore? I, I'm just asking, like, do we no. not care anymore? Do we not, not want someone at least to maybe anymore. have the opportunity to get on a stage with Joe? At the, at the White House Correspondents Dinner, I like Roy Wood Jr., but, you know, he's been on this podcast before. But he made a joke about how um, Joe Biden has handled student debt, like he's canceled student debt. And I don't know if that was like a slip of the tongue or he didn't realize it got caught up in the courts or whatever. But like people are on the biggest stages in the country saying that Joe Biden actually did something for American student debtors. That's a lie. Right. And Marianne Williamson, for whatever you want to say about her, is someone who would say the opposite if given an opportunity and if her campaign had enough energy. And one last thing I'll say is that I, I'm hearing a lot of people say things well, like, I'm glad they're running. It's like, you're glad they're running. You understand that you're benefiting from their running but you aren't even willing to boost them with a the vote. Like, right. to me, there's something kind of like, I don't know, selfish and self-defeating about that. Like, I'm not even saying give them money. Like, there are people are talking about Act Blue in the comments. I'm literally, if you want to argue with yourself, be my guest, but you're not arguing with me because I never told you to give a dime. I'm right. saying consider, if you have time, if you don't have a family emergency, if you don't have kids to support, if you have a job that won't let you out, I'm not talking to you. But if you have the possibility to request an absentee ballot or go down to your local high school or wherever you vote and cast a ballot for anybody but Joe Biden in the Democratic primary, it seems obvious to me that that's beneficial to the interests of the left. That's it. I agree because I, I can say that in my tiny circle, I know that the people that I talk to regularly that talk to me about politics, if they were considering vote, if they did vote for Biden, they are wanting to go in the opposite direction. Not because they think it's going to be better, but just because they don't see themselves as any better off. I mean, it seems kind of, like you say, it seems self-defeating to to guard your vote or keep your vote or just say that you're not going to put your vote behind this person who could be creating some change. People want something different. And, and it's it, it almost feels like that whole argument, oh, well, Bernie can't win, but you see how far he got. So by being self-defeating, we're not getting anywhere. But yeah. thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I appreciate I like you I calling in. Yeah, yeah I, I'm glad faith. you brought that stuff up. Keep the faith. Yeah. Um, since you brought him up, let's go ahead and get Case Study in the mix. How are you doing, Case? Hey, what's going on, Brianna? How you doing? I'm doing quite well. I'm setting myself up uh, <laughs> on the little roof deck right now. Nice. Getting myself some natural organic vitamin D. How are you doing? What's on your mind? Can't complain. I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you, David, for the shout out. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, I should have wrote down, wrote it down. <laughs> um, but let's talk about the debates. Do you think that, oh, this is, I remember now. Okay. So 2016, 2020, we know that mainstream media was a huge factor of, of the downfall of Bernie Sanders. And mm -hmm. we know that independent media going forward for progressive or leftists to break through. We need to be stronger than, or at least on the same level as mainstream media. So I was thinking, like, okay, we definitely have to find a way to co 
coalesce, have solidarity with each other, amplify each other so that we can get better than mainstream media. But then I, I, I was thinking about it today that um, maybe we don't need all of left independent media. Maybe even we can get some help from just regular independent media, which is uh, like Charlemagne the God. He came out where he was very strong, um, challenging the Democrats to debate. And then there's mm-hmm. also um, Patrick Bad David. He's a with the PBD podcast, which I hope to see you on there one day. But I saw Jack Uga was there. Kyle Kalinske was on there. Um, Sam Cedar was on there and it was, I had a, I was entertained by them going on his podcast. He's more of a capitalist. I don't, I don't want to call him right wing, even though he, he's a very big um, Trump and DeSantis supporter, but hmm. he's more like on that side of the equation. He's more, he's a huge, huge capitalist. I would say that, but he had very good conversations. And I think all the leftists handled themselves very well when they went there. So I, I, I know, and I feel like um, RFK will probably go on that show I'm hoping that he goes on Breakfast Club, Club just like Marianne Williamson. I mm-hmm. heard that um, Breaking Points is going to have more on there. Like, mm-hmm. okay, it's great to have regular interviews, but if the Democrats definitely don't want to have a debate, I would love to see Marianne Williamson and R.F. Kennedy have like uh, debates in these different venues with the with the um, hosts that are very popular. And I think that can even catch fire. And who knows what can come of that? So I just wanted, what do you think about that? I would love to see that as well. Yep. Okay. Well, I hope you will be involved in that somehow. I Very among left that. media. You um, described that you, that you pointed mm. out, you know, you've left off some pretty big names there. You know, is TYT yeah. going to get behind the idea that there should be a debate? Is... Um, you know, are some of these, uh, is, is Majority Report going to get behind the idea that there should be a debate? My, my fear is, to, so if I were planning the left, if I were in charge and people actually listened to me and 95% of the left didn't have me blocked, muted, or uh, shit posts and talk about me regularly on Reddit every time I open my mouth, then I would say that our sole goal, our, our primary goal should be having a concentrated campaign to argue that there needs to be a primary. Like that should be, we should have a hashtag going. We should all be tweeting multiple times a day about how Marianne Williamson thinks this. She's the only one in the race. There should be a primary. RFK Jr. thinks this. He's the only one in the race. X percent of Americans agree with him. There should be a primary. Like, we should all constantly be tweeting, having whatever opportunities we have to go on the mainstream to say that one unified message, that it is anti-democratic, that the Democrats are trying to run on we're preserving democracy against Donald Trump and the, and the Republicans, but they won't even allow there to be a Democratic primary. We should be doing episodes about how everyone says, well, Oma McGovern lost because there was a primary. No, there's a historical record that shows that that narrative is wrong, that it's Democratic Party propaganda that they've been using to shut down primary debates, debates against incumbents for years. We shouldn't stomach it, that this is an unprecedented race, that Joe Biden has unprecedented levels of un- popularity. This happened in 2016 and we ended up getting Donald Trump. The Democratic Party is going to get us Donald Trump. Democratic Party is going to get us Donald Trump. If we don't have a debate, we're going to get Donald Trump. That should be our messaging across all the platforms. But right now, most of those platforms are so antagonistic to both Marianne and RFK Jr. that they hate them more than they appreciate the value of advocating for a debate. And with all due respect to Shama and everybody else who disagrees with me, that is an incredible waste of leverage. 
It's just, it's, it's a negligent, in my view, a negligent waste of political opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm praying for, I call for radical solidarity, which is solidarity by any means necessary. And I think there's only few um, issues that you can do that on. One of the issues was Medicare for all uh, marches. You know, they did it in mm-hmm. the, the individual states and then they did it at the um, White House, I think there's no reason why anybody should have been against that. We could have radical solidarity around that. And then around this, where we have left this pushing um, anti-war, uh, environmentalism, mm-hmm. Mar- Marianne Williamson, you know, I have my, my beef with um, RFK is he doesn't, I don't know his health care plan, but um, mm-hmm. they both would, I think if we can come together in radical solidarity to push for debates at the very least. Yep. And I heard Kyle Kalinsky and I'll pass the mic to you and jump off to let somebody else. Um, Kyle Kalinsky said that he wanted to um, come up with a campaign and he, he didn't know exactly how to do it yet or what he was going to do, but that's something he's going to be thinking about. So uh, I hear you're like-minded. Hopefully we can get together and do something like that. And I'll... Yeah, for, for sure. For sure. I don't, um, I really don't get it. (laughs) I don't really get what the hesitation is. I mean, I think there's like some psychological stuff about like not wanting to be perceived as naive. I mean, there's this argument that people make about Jill Stein and other Green Party candidates too, that it's like, well, you actually think they're going to win? Like, that is so not the point. You know, like Bernie wasn't going to win. Like in 2016, it was so irritating that people were unwilling to vote for Bernie in the primary because they were so, they were like, he's not going to win the primary. And I was like, there's there's certainly, he's certainly not if you don't vote for him. (laughs) You know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's it's so incredibly toxic to the potential of the left. It's it's toxic to the, um, um, to the rise of a third party as well, that, that way of thinking. Like you are, people are cementing the narrative that's ultimately gonna be used against the third party effort whenever it finally gets its act together. And then people like, I think that um, Andrew Yang should be part of this radical solidaristic you know, message that just says, let's have a debate. There are all kind of libertarians and others that could be a part of this, this message that we need to have a debate. There are bad faith Republicans who hope, who hope it's going to hurt Joe Biden, who should be on board with the idea that we should have a debate and we should exploit that vulnerability. We should be exploiting it. Whether or not we participate, the Democratic primary is happening. And every time I ask Shama or Chris Hedges or even Kimberly today, you know, well, just own it. Do you think that we should just sit it out and not participate at all? They all say no. They all say, I'm not saying sit it out. And then when I say, well, what should we do to take advantage of it? They never say anything concrete. And I'm t- I've been having this conversation with them for over a year now. It's exhausting. Just look, if you genuinely think it hurts the left to even participate in the primary because it validates the Democratic Party system, I disagree with you, but just say it. Just say that that's your position. But to me, there's something like inconsistent about being unwilling to like, because they know, I think, on some level that there is an opportunity there, that there's political opportunity to exploit, but they don't want to either tarnish their own reputations or their institution's reputations by coming off as credulously supporting every part of any of these candidates' platforms. And I get that. But the answer to that is to say, don't credit every part of their platform. Have a caveated endorsement. And endorse voting for someone, don't endorse the candidate. And endorse having a primary, don't endorse a candidate. This to me just isn't rocket science. People aren't morons. They can, they can, they can keep that thought in their head, you know. And I don't know. It's just very disappointing to me that we're now going into. We have a year. You yeah. Know? We're, 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 ordinarily, the first debates would be happening like 
over the summer. Like yeah. now, like we would be gearing up for debates. Yeah. And that campaign needs to happen now. Yeah. But instead, they want what? What? Want Joe Biden to just coast to the nomination? How does that benefit the left? You have to be able to put into words and explain to me how that benefits the left. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I also uh, clipped, uh, I hardly, I usually don't clip Jimmy Dore, but I, I saw, you know, I'm thinking something made a great point about how um, back in the Nazi days, um, before they took power, um, Tromsky t- talked about how there is value in criticizing the left from the left mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he gave you a shout out he gave crystal ball a shout out and a couple of the leftists and i thought that was a very good clip because you always see people you know telling you and uh, crystal ball and and them that hey why are you criticizing the democrats why don't you criticize the republicans mm-hmm. and then you know we we have enough people criticizing the republicans from the left and i think that we need more of uh, people like you Charlemagne the god and in the same vein criticizing the left and i think we'll be better for it in the long run but i hope you enjoy your vacation and um, hop in the pool don't (laughs) drop your phone in the pool like i did on my last vacation (laughs) and you have a great one thank you you too keep the faith thanks for all you do if you guys enjoy cases videos and have you know a few bucks to spare and want to give to his patreon like I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. So much of the left media infrastructure wouldn't be able to function without all of the work that Case does, clipping videos and circulating them on Twitter. So, you know, if you feel like you want to just give him some financial recognition for all of that work that he's doing gratis, you should you should go to his Cash App or whatever he has posted uh, on his uh, Twitter page. All right, Jonathan, my friend, how are you doing this afternoon? so far so good uh you know not as not as good as you but uh i do i do sympathize i i remember uh the last time i i took a trip out of country was to costa rica and Spanish mm-hmm. that i had thought was passable you know was supplemented by hand gestures i really was hit like a ton of- <laughs> i really should have brushed up before i left but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I I did the thing where it's like I landed, walked off the plane, and it suddenly occurred to me like, oh shit, like fuck, like I should have done a little refresher. I'm like walking around saying La Manzana because that's the only thing I remember from the last time I uploaded Duolingo. <laughs> I was one of those morons who took French in high school. I was living in Africa at the time, in my defense, and that was the most proximate of the languages offered in the continent I was living on. <laughs> There's like one Spanish speaking country in Africa and many, many French speaking ones, obviously, but I wasn't even in West Africa. So it was tortured logic in the first place. Anyway, I have regrets. <laughs> well, oh I God. live in Texas, yeah. so I, I really have no excuse. Yeah, but, you don't. <laughs> uh, that is the best way to learn is to get pushed in the deep end. And I had a good time doing it. And I bet you will too. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how I do. We'll we'll see what it comes to, but uh, what's what are you thinking about this evening? What do you make of all of this or today's episode or whatever else is on your mind? Well, I only got like thirty five minutes into today's episode because I got off my forty eight hour shift and I passed out when I got home and woke up. But um, you know, I I do certainly agree with the sentiment in the beginning. It's been uh, entirely too long since Margaret Kimberly's been on. Presidential was a great book too. Everybody should check that out. It's basically got a a history of uh, of every president of the United States and uh, their policies and views towards uh, the black community. 
And uh, spoiler alert, it's not good. It's not good. Mm -hmm. Even the ones you think are good are not good. Uh, but um, yeah. I will say, uh, firstly, congratulations on actually leaving a great snarky tweet up for once. Uh, <laughs> I have been enjoying the hell out of the comments on that, and uh, it definitely hit home. It hit a nerve. And, like, don't get me wrong, I, I love that group of people, but they need to hear that. They absolutely do. Well, I wasn't. I think that I wasn't even talking about who people presume I'm talking about. And by the way, I had, you know, I've had to look. I've had to mute some people. So I saw a bunch of responses from muted parties that I have not looked at because I'm sorry. I'm a human being. You don't have to care. That, no one has to care that I'm a human being. Like that's not your job. If you think the revolution requires uh, a certain attitude toward me, then I respect that decision and you can tweet away and make videos and do whatever you want to do. But as a human being, I'm going to protect myself. And um, if all that I'm hearing is what I perceive to be bad faith negativity, I'm going to go ahead and mute you, which is a shame because I think that a lot of folks have a lot of good stuff to say, but I'm not interested in seeing every tweet that I do blasted by a bunch of what I consider to be bad faith attacks where people are making the arguments that I have never made, putting words in my mouth and lying about me, especially when I have very generously, repeatedly invited them on my show to have the conversation face to face. And I have tried to support them and platform in every way I know how, both on my show and on Rising. You know, I don't like I don't need that. So I wish I didn't have to mute people. I wish I could you know, consume all of the content that I think is valuable and that they create. But, like, this is the world that we live in. So I hope they're enjoying tweeting into the oblivion, but I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. And it honestly wasn't even about them to begin with. Well, I, that's, well the, the thing is, like, it's, there's, like, it could apply to so many people. Yeah, uh, you know, and we all, we all know who they are. And it's annoying. And they all need to hear that. Ah, the way you start the revolution is by attacking other media personalities, right? You know, winky face. Like, that's. Like they all need to understand, like this is this is them like navel gazing and and like this is something that people need to hear and grapple with. And unfortunately, uh, there are plenty of people in the replies who are not grappling with it. But uh, you know, I've do, been do, enjoying do one uh, video about me. Do two videos, but like at a certain point, and people were like, "Well, how often do you do hit videos about AOC?" To be honest, for one, AOC is a sitting congresswoman and someone in power and who deserves critique. But even yeah. that being the case. Look at the titles of my videos. Look at the subjects of my episodes. What, one one every six weeks, two months, three months actually is about AOC? Like, Shama and I talked about the AOC interview because that was a big interview that AOC did. When's the last time I talked about AOC before that? The, the railroad worker strike in January? Like, I don't spend all my time talking about AOC. I don't spend my time talking about any other content creators for sure. My my episodes are about what's going on in Somalia, what's going on in East Palestine, what's going on with the Starbucks workers. Like, if you read the content that I'm putting out, I'm not doing what's going on with RBN, what's going on with Bausch. I did I did the Bausch episode once, <laughs> you know. But what you know, what's going on with Sam Cedar? Like, that's not the that's not my content. No, and I think you, you framed it really well, even with the AOC thing. It's like, it's not that you want to be talking about AOC as often as people are talking about AOC, but she has a way of, uh, you know, getting into the spotlight and stepping in it. Mm -hmm. Like, just like just stepping on landmines and, and blowing up and or saying things that are just exceptionally cringe. You, you kind of can't 
ignore it because she's a sitting congresswoman. Yeah, and she, uh, she's, for better or for worse, you know, she is revealing things about the thinking of our elected progressives when she does interviews like that that are politically relevant to the strategies that we take going forward. It's actually newsworthy, as opposed to what my opinions are, what David Sirota's opinions are. And I'm not saying that anybody's above a critique. Like, if you want to make the case that David Sirota, let's say, is doing more harm than good and that he is you know, shoehorning people back to the Democratic Party, make your argument. Say, David Sirota does good reporting, but you shouldn't listen to him when he tells you to vote for Democrats, if in fact he tells you to vote for Democrats. I don't even know that that's true, but if that is true, don't listen to him. And then that's her point made. But making your whole personality about, like, you know, hating someone like David Sirota, I just, I don't personally get it. There are people who I do hate that I don't make my whole personality about. Right, it's kind of infantile. It's not that relevant. But it does. I'm sorry. I don't want to make these accusations. I hate when people are like, well, you're a grifter and you, it's for clicks or whatever. But like, I see the pattern and I see people being able to grow their accounts off of criticizing me. Like, I see it happening. And I would just caution everybody that there's a peak but there, and then there's a fall off when you do that. It happened to someone I really, really liked on the left who decided to make his personality calling me an Uncle Tom and coming after me. And now he's not really on the internet anymore. And I think it's a loss for the left. But I personally wouldn't take that gamble. Like, it's fun to beat up on someone for a while, but then your audience gets tired of it and you lose more broad credibility with the audience. So that would be I mean, my recommendation, I, but if people are going to do what they want to do. Honestly, that seems like the hand of karma to me, but uh, that's me. Uh, but I, I also um, uh, wanted to ask, because uh, I, uh, I was watching Rising today, how did uh, Jessica Burbank get in the mix? Uh, I don't I don't know exactly. I know that she's in all week um, while I'm out. I know that there was she's been on it as a guest a couple of times. And I believe that there was some, you know, excitement about how she was going to do. She's like a real like kind of a solid Bernie left person, I under, as I understand it, as opposed to some of the other left chair people who are not quite so. <laughs> left, yeah, I mean, like I, know I, her, like. I know her a little bit like she's an MMT or I know her a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um like uh, she, uh, Pete D'Alessandro uh, speaks uh, very highly of her um, abilities and work ethic as an organizer uh, mm-hmm. during the 2020 campaign, uh, you know, when she was in Iowa. Uh, but, uh, you know, like she is like she got big on TikTok and that's kind of what she was doing for real progressives when she was with us for five oh, minutes. Nice. Uh, but uh like you can kind of see, like I like I have kind of mixed feelings about her performance as a host because uh, she's clearly used to working solo and kind of doesn't really have the some of the banter ability. Although some of her skill set is coming through, where she has these kind of pithy, concise one-liners that are actually mm-hmm. like really clever, funny, uh, good arguments uh, for certain things, and she. Uh, Laid a few traps for Robbie that were kind of amusing. Oh, um, interesting. I'll have to. I'll have to watch today's coverage. I haven't. But she also, yeah, then. she also kind of comes across like she's half asleep sometimes, and like doesn't like. There's a certain charisma that you kind of have to have as a co-host. Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll see if she develops throughout the week. But uh, yeah, let's, kinda, let's give her a shot. You know, first yeah. day. You know, one day is. You know, people have to get used to the new medium and stuff. So let's see how she does this week. I, what did you think about, did you watch last Friday? Because the, the, 
the pair there got really big numbers on one of their videos. There was like a 600,000 video. Now, I, you know, there's some skepticism about, you know, whether that's a pairing that will work long term. But I, I kind of like uh, what's his name, Jason. I, I kind of like I, I was enjoying them. Did you did you watch any of them, Jason and the one I, I her name? I did not because like I basically only watch that show when you're on most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only I only caught it today just to see who the guest host was, and then it was Jessica Burbank. I'm like, oh, I know her, so I watched all the all the all the segments. But um, mostly, like I skip Fridays because you're not on it. Well, you guys are you guys are very sweet. I you know I'm rooting for. Look, I want there to be more obviously elevated left commentators look again in a world where in a world where everyone weren't fighting with each other all the time there would be a whole host of potential rising hosts from uh what's her name at tyt emma vigland could be subbing in or people like um fiorina what's her what's her name she's uh cute she just had a baby she's ethically ambiguous uh she's got short bob with black bob Fig, you know, guys, you guys don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, Isabel? Fiorina Isabel? No. She's, yeah, she's like maybe Asian or part half Asian. You know who I'm talking about. Fit, fit, God, what's her freaking name? Uh, she's in the TYT universe. And oh, well, that might be why I, don't I know her. forget her name. But there's a lot of people who would be very competent hosts. Or, like, some, I, my dream is that, like, if Rania were in. America should oh, yeah. be a great option. A lot of the breakthrough. They're not, I'm not obviously feuding with those people, but, um, you know, there's a whole world of potential, like, villain hosts that are from kind of, they're very seasoned and they're from the TYT or Minority Report universe. But because of the way the factions have happened, they've all driven their, drawn their lines in the sand. And, you know, like, it would be nice to give people some more air. And people who, are, like, are playing second fiddle on some of those bigger outlet outlets could have a chance to really shine on rising. And this is why, like, I, I say that because I really do want to bury the hatch. I'm not mad at anybody because of a difference of opinion over a force of vote. But there are people who have made their entire personality calling the other half of the left grifters and sellouts and secret Tucker Carlson lovers and all of these kind of things. And it's, I see every day the ways that it's hurting our ability to coalesce and amplify shared messages. Every day, I feel it. Yeah, I, I see that too. Although it is worth noting that there is a difference between somebody like Rania, who's on the proper left, who would kind of probably uh, be to a certain degree persona non grata to a lot of uh, even uh, second tier corporate media outlets um, sure. versus, uh, you know, like Jessica Burbank, like despite the fact that we agree on a lot of the economics, like she is definitely like more of the kind of milk toast progressive end of the Bernie spectrum. Uh, she does not have a, a complex analysis the way you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, so those kinds of people do tend to be more palatable to um, I think uh, corporations like uh, what is it? Next star who owns or who owns yeah. uh, the rising. Well, they've been giving us a lot of latitude. So I think that, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, but they haven't shown any apprehension about the kind of leftiness of the left host. By the way, I was thinking of Francesca Fiorentini. You know, Francesca. Oh, yeah, she's definitely TYT universe. Yeah. Uh, also on the milk toast end of things, but seems like a nice enough person. She has good interpersonal skills. She's good on camera. She's, you know, I hate to say it, but, it ma- you know, people think it matters over there, you know, attractive. You know, those, those kinds of things. 
then I, you know, I would like to see her give a, you know, have a whirl in the chair. She can promote her own show from that perspective. Like I would like to see everybody. The bituation room. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the, that's, I think that's the name of her show, bituation room. Yeah. Which I thought was, which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah, I just, I don't know, like the whole Nando Villa, like there was that whole world of people that like now I'm completely disconnected from, and you know, it sucks. Like I, I liked those people. Yeah, one of the one of the tweets that I, I almost kind of wish you hadn't deleted, although I understand why you did, was that that one about that whole group of people, which I think has this really toxic dynamic that has developed since the death of Michael Brooks, where it revolves around uh, kind of his his views in, at the time encased in amber with no thought as to how he might have evolved. And they haven't evolved either, and they treat it almost like it's holy scripture. Yeah. And that's kind but of like, yeah, also, it's unhealthy. It's okay, it's okay for, like, Michael and I used to argue about, like, Green Party stuff. He thought third parties were kind of silly. He called them the dumb, dumb left. Like, he would call me the dumb, dumb left, and we'd laugh about it. Like, but he, you know... I, am I allowed to say that he was also my friend? I don't know. Like, apparently, I don't yeah. have the right to say that we had a relationship or that's somehow disrespectful. I don't. I don't know what I'm allowed to say. But we had a, you know, we had a relationship. I'm not saying mine was more significant than his relationship with other people, but I considered him to be a friend. He was the person that I went to when the Bernie campaign reached out to have dinner and take advice about what I should do next in my career. I found him to be supportive and brilliant and wonderful, and I miss him. And it's completely okay to say that he was a wonderful, insightful person, and also that I would disagree with him, and that he might disagree with me today. But the idea that someone would tweet, he'd be ashamed of you. Like, that's so dark yeah, and that's, inappropriate to say. It's also not you know? how he rolls. That's not how he rolled. We, we in his life, disagreed, and we still cared about each other and were friends. And that's what people should take, if, if they take a lesson away, is that it's possible to disagree with someone and not be unkind and lose your own humanity. That's the lesson. Not that we all have to be in lockstep all the time. Yeah, I mean, I listened, like, I think we, I didn't even remember uh, this all that clearly, but, uh, you know, on, uh, I think Neoliberal Tears and I on our show, uh, you know, on one of the earlier episodes, like, played some some old clips, and, like, I was like, man, I don't remember his views being that cringe. But, you know, and there are things that I would definitely, you know, looking back on it, uh, have strongly disagreed with him on, but at the end of the day, that doesn't change the fact that he, when I was, you know, a, a tiny, you know, nothing account with like 20 followers or less, uh, mostly people I knew in real life, um, you know, he would respond to me on Twitter. He would yeah. uh, engage with me like I was somebody that mattered. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's one of those, those uh, traits that, that you share in common that means a lot to people when... You know, like I, I think, and I think he realized that it meant a lot to those people that uh, you know somebody that was uh, you know whose work that they respected was and that was probably getting a lot of attention was willing to treat you like your voice mattered. Yeah, I, I think I've said this before, but apart from I went on um, Sam, there were two Sams that had a podcast, and I'm forgetting the name of it now. Sam. Sam, Sam, anyway, um, one of them is now very upset with me on the internet. <laughs> Maybe both of them, I don't know. But uh, apart from them who had me on right after I wrote my identity politics article, um, Michael was the second person 
on the left to invite me on a show. It, I think I've seen that one, actually. I think it's I saw the, that when it was new. That's, that's kind of part of how I knew who you were. It was the fourth episode of Michael's show ever, which I didn't have a sense of at the time. But it was early in the days of his show. And at the time, I was working at my firm um, in midtown Manhattan. And I would get on the train after work and come down to downtown Brooklyn and record with him. Like about what, We were doing it like about once a month at that stage. And I had so much fun. And we would drink and we would do the after hour session. And it was, it made me feel like, like he was such a respectful interviewer. He seemed to really want to know what I had to say. He had great people skills. He was funny. And it made me really feel like I was on the map or some, on, on some way, in some way. He constantly pro, uh, platformed black leftists in a way that I got to say, other shows don't necessarily do. He also had Malika Jabali on when she wrote that really great piece about um, what happened with black voters in Wisconsin and started to help her elevate her profile. Um, he used to have a big waz on. I learned about who T from Champagne Sharks was um, from watching his show. You know, he, you know, so there, there can be no question about his role in the media ecosystem. But from my humble opinion, who has no right to say anything about Michael more than anybody else, I want to be really clear, but from my humble observation, what I really appreciate about him as a person and what his legacy was, was his ability to disagree with people respectfully, forcefully and clearly, but in a way that always foregrounded our respective humanity. And I miss that a great deal. And still brought those people in many cases who disagreed together for a yeah. broader project, which I wish we knew that magic formula. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, that's all I got for this week. But, um, you know, just uh, I, I look forward to finishing the Margaret Kimberly episode. I am delighted you had her on. I love her. Me too. Apologies. Like today was supposed to be a premium episode, but there was some posting confusion. So it's public and I don't really know what I'm going to do about that. But Whatever. that's why the video was delayed. There was some confusion about posting the video. I think it's probably maybe up now. I haven't checked. Uh, but again, apologies to everyone. And we'll just have more free episodes this week. Enjoy your vacation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. I always appreciate you. Keep the faith. You too. Bye. Let's go to uh, Lewis. You seem like a new caller. I don't remember this little cat face. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, hi, Bree. Can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. Yeah. Uh, so first time, long time. Um, cool, cool, cool. I thought so. Love that for us. Cancer, Cancer Pisces, so lots of feelings. Ooh, a sensitive king in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to call in. Um, I've been trying to call in for a while since um, the discussion of the railroad workers. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that um, my employer is uh, the federal government. I work for the post office. Okay. And we're in kind of a similar situation where we are legally forbidden from going on strike. Uh -huh. um, and a lot of discussion then was about how their union wasn't ready for a strike and, you know, for fighting for a good contract if, if mm -hmm. the strike. And so I kind of just wanted to talk a little bit about that and about- Please, what, let, us, um, let us know, paint us a picture of what's going on with the post office. Yeah, so I, I'm a, a mailman letter carrier. Um, mm -hmm. And we're kind of the biggest chunk of employees at this point. Um, and 
everyone knows the stories about people going postal and where that term comes from. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you don't, but the short of it is that um, it, it was a trend in the 90s and going on to, till today of uh, workplace shootings, unfortunately, of employees of their managers. Is it still happening with some regularity? With some regularity, yes. Um, hmm. Recently, in the past year in Nashville, this happened. And um, Wait, I thought the Nashville shooter what worked at a bank. Uh, it's a different, it, w- it was a less publicized event. It wasn't, um, oh, okay. it's not the same thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, what a, what but, a country. Okay. But to wrap that up really quickly, I guess, um, one very famous short anecdote that I have about that specific topic is um, there was one that happened back in the 90s and news reporters came in and they talked, they interviewed the employees and uh, they asked them, hey, when, when you heard that this happened, did you know right off the bat who it was, which employee it was that came in and killed the manager? Mm-hmm. And they all replied, I had no idea who it was. In my opinion, it could have been any one of us because that's how poorly we, would, we were being treated by management. Oh, wow. Which is crazy. Um, yeah. And the um, union that represents clerks, the people who are at the window when you go to the post office, mm-hmm. and people who work behind the scenes sorting mail, Mm-hmm. Um, they had a rally just this past Friday nationwide um, mm. to talk about workplace treatment and hostile work environment and everything that's being created by the uh, postal management, kind of on all levels. What's um, going on there? Like, why is it such a hostile environment? I think there are a lot of factors. Um, I'm not like the most qualified person to talk to about the topic, but I will. Well, you I might be the that... most. You might be the most qualified person. <laughs> Well, I would say one thing that I noticed um, is that a lot of management and a lot of uh, postal employees in general do come from the military. And I Mm -hmm. think that kind of militaristic drill sergeant type of management is kind of something that's always been there. And maybe um, being that it is a historical uh, employer of veterans was, was effective in some way, you know, like veterans were used to this type of treatment. And so it's effective in that way. Hmm. Um, but it's really gotten out of hand and I, and you know, it's, it's not life or death. It is the male at the end of the day. Um, Hmm. but, uh, but other than that, I would say it's really just kind of, it's, it's like in any business, you know, where you have your boss's boss who sits at a desk all day and they look at the metrics and they see you're not meeting the metrics and they don't know that you had to go and pick up your kid after school or something. They just see Mm -hmm. that you didn't meet the metric and your number and all these things. Mm-hmm. And the levels of bureaucracy are so vast and deep in the post office, it's very easy for those types of things to happen. Yeah. Sometimes when I when I get back at the end of the day, I hear my boss's boss literally screaming at the top of their lungs at my boss. And so I know how that comes down to me. Mm-hmm. You know, because why are they going to treat me any differently than they're being treated by their are, are the kind of funding issues that we've been hearing about um, with the post office for years in terms of them being defunded, um, uh, contributing to kind of the stress that's put on you to meet whatever the quotas are. Are there not sufficient staff to get it done? They've obviously been closing down offices and pulling up um, drop-off locations and downsizing and not picking new heads of the post office and the whole Louis DeJoy fiasco. I mean, do you think that there's those kinds of you know, is, is, a, is a kind of basically defunding the post office part of the issue? 
Yeah, I think that it is definitely part of a bigger neoliberal project to yeah. um, tear down one of the last public institutions. I mean, your mail carrier is the face of the, the federal government that you ever see. You know, that's the person. Yeah. Um, and I really think that they don't like that. And that's, you know, something they've been trying to get rid of for a long time. Um, Louis DeJoy is definitely part of that, but he's just the newest flavor of kind of the same thing, in, in my opinion. I mean, um, he's the first postmaster general to be hired from outside the post office. So he admittedly mm. himself um, says that he knows nothing about running the post office. Mm. Um, and so I guess that's kind of um, what I wanted to call in about was I feel like it would make a really good radar and would be something that would really resonate with some of the older and more conservative listeners of um, Rising to cover that topic because yeah. there are so many people all over the country who aren't getting their mail, they aren't getting their packages, the people who yeah. are tasked with delivering that stuff are working 70 hours a week. Um, yeah, they still can't get everything done. And people need their social security checks. People need like yeah. essential, like older people who are not getting email bills and stuff yeah. like that are very reliant on the, the, that institution in a way that I think is really ignored by younger folks for yeah. sure. And it's the people in yeah. our society who have the most to lose who lose it. In that case, like yeah, if you can't have a bank account, you're relying on your paycheck to come in the mail. Yeah, Bernie, I wish you were still out here talking about postal banking. And so I wish AOC were still out here talking about postal banking. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, yeah. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with you. Topic. Yeah. Or maybe it just seems like it because I'm in it. <laughs> but, well, uh, we we got to start chipping away. That's why we need more voices and we can't be so fractured. Mm -hmm. We need people yeah. taking on chunks of this all the time. I Yeah, I this is a pet. This is, I almost call it a pet project. This is one of, one of the things that is closer to my heart. I've had, you know, historically, the, you know, the, these kinds of jobs have offered some of the best kinds of employment for black yeah. people at a time before, you know, there was equality. Takes that there's equality now. Two of my, 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 my most recent two boyfriends, my last mm -hmm. one, his mom worked her whole life for the post office. My boyfriend before that, one of his mom worked in the behind this, behind the scenes as a clerk. His dad was a letter, letter mm -hmm. carrier, not in my Westchester neighborhood, but like right next door. So we would, he yeah. knew our letter carrier and there was like this really cute yeah. like thing they retired both from the post office and they, I mean, they were, they were, they were first generation um, Chinese immigrants. And, you know, it, it was, it was like this really integral part of so many people's lives for various reasons. And I feel very strongly about how we should valorize the post postal service and the way that we talk about the military. And mm -hmm. I completely agree with you that this is a really good thing to focus on to get folks who otherwise might not understand, you know, socialism, why it's good yeah. and why it's good for the state to do certain things should be on board. So I'm going to, I'm going to put that on my list of priorities for sure. Cool. Um, I let you go. I just wanted to say one other person who is not quite related to this topic, but uh, marginally is uh, mm -hmm. Sean O'Brien, who's the new Teamsters president. Mm -hmm. um, he's a very good speaker. Um, he has like very strong mandate from his membership to negotiate a really good contract for UPS which in turn helps us. Um, and he has a lot of, he does a lot of talk about not just Teamsters, but the labor movement in general, taking back uh, power from the quote unquote, uh, white collar crime syndicates that uh, are UPS and other businesses. Mm, so you think he'd be a good guest? 
I think he would be. I mean, he'd be a little fiery. I don't know if Robbie could handle him, but uh, could be. Well, he can be a bad faith guest if yeah, yeah, <laughs> Matt yeah. Arising yeah, is. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, I wrote that down, too. Thank you for the suggestion. I really appreciate it, Lewis. No problem. Thank you so much, Bree. All right. Thank you. Keep the faith. You too. All right, Aaron, what's on your mind this afternoon? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing very well. You've got a you've got a nice little radio voice there, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's why my YouTube channel is so successful. <laughs> One time someone recognized me out in public, actually, it was because of my speaking voice. And I was kind of made a really good joke to the person I was talking to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but but that's not why I'm calling. Okay, um, all right. Well, I'm I'm enjoying whatever you have to say already because you, you sound <laughs> like you were you were made for this medium. So so hit me hit me, Aaron. I appreciate it. It means a lot because I'm a pretty big fan, and I still get nervous calling you. So um, <laughs> so there's something really specific I want to hear rhetorically out of Marianne, and she made me think of it because she came really close to it in that interview that I saw with her on the Breakfast Club. Hmm. Now, one thing I haven't really forgotten or completely gotten over is how back in the lead up to the Iraq war, you know, not the original Gulf one, but the one under George W. Bush, that people who are against that war is characterized as being anti-American. And uh -huh. the attitude is always, don't you think America is great enough for this? Uh -huh. I've been waiting for a long time to see a left winger turn that around. And I think Marianne is kind of really close. But what I still want to hear her say is, don't you think America is great enough to have health care? Turn it right around on them. So just say, I want to set this goal. Like like JFK, she was kind of doing the JFK thing where instead of setting a goal, like we're going to land on the moon in 10 years. Uh -huh. So say something like that, like, okay, I think we in the U.S. can have public health care in five years. You know what I mean? Or maybe within a presidential term. And if someone pushes uh -huh. back, say, don't you think America's great enough for that? Slovenia figured that out. You think America uh -huh. can't figure that out? And I live in South I Carolina. I love that. Pretty effective. <laughs> South Carolina is always ranked as one of the worst health outcomes uh, in medical infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure in the entire country. Yeah. yeah wife, I, I, no. Your your wife is in the healthcare field. No, she work, uh, she works for the county, but we have you know mm -hmm. we have, we're the exception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love 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 turning that around, and I've I've seen people do a lot of tweets that are on the lines of like I can't believe we're sending money to Israel so that they can have healthcare which, you know, is like a narrower version of this argument, like all of our military funding, all of these other kinds of things are going across the world and where, where people have better standards of living than us for various reasons. We did the Marshall Plan after World War II and like set up the universal health care in all these other countries in Europe and we're still struggling because, you know, whatever. Right, whatever, they also all the historical reasons. I, I love that framing. Let's see. Let me see if I can put that to, to Marianne next time we talk. Um, I think like that's what she would like as well. I was waiting for Bernie to say that too, but it never quite happened. Let me take this note in my notes app. Aren't we great enough? Can you imagine how amazing that would be in the context of a debate with Donald Trump when he's talking about America, make America great again? You know, who's going to talk about how much greater America could be? Who's going to fight for you to have an improvement over the status quo? It's been really great for people like Donald Trump and the billionaire class, but who's actually going to invest to make it great, making it sincerely great for the average American? Like that is like right there. But someone like Biden can't really, you know, pull that low hanging fruit because what is he actually planning? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I'm absolutely kind of fascinated by that I don't think people are talking about enough, I think, is that, um, you know, the midterms, ostensibly the Democrats did so well because of abortion, right? But what mm -hmm. have they done about it since then? I mean, it's been literally not. They haven't even talked about it. Yeah. 
I mean, and that's the thing. It's like. You at least pretend a little bit, you know. Yeah, I'm not trying to say, like, I really never want to come off as being indifferent to the legitimate harms that someone like Donald Trump can cause, whether it's the taxes for the rich, creating, you know, increasing income inequality, the Muslim ban, the border politics. Like, I'm not, I'm really not being indifferent to any of that. But some of the things that they really hand-wrung about as, like, Trump's going to do it, like, I understand that it's Trump's appointees that created the ability to overturn Roe, but a lot of the stuff is manifesting under Biden in a way that I think obscures the contrast between a Trump presidency and a Biden presidency. And when you've had Democrats in power for decades, 50 years post-Roe, and at ne- with, with huge supermajorities at times in Congress and not codifying Roe, the argument that we have to vote against lesser two evilism because of Roe or whatever, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to get you in and what? You're going to continue to hold me in this status, this precarious status that you can threaten me with a bad time every four years. It just doesn't work anymore. It's, and it's not that the harms aren't real and that it can't get worse. But when you don't trust the alternative to actually make it better or to protect you from the harm, it feels like you're just kicking the harm down the road. You're not actually defending yourself against it. And it, it leads more and more people to say, OK, well, let it come. Let's see how bad it can get, and if maybe that will galvanize folks to have the revolution of the kind that we really need. And and I mean, I'm just trying to give voice to what I feel like where I feel people, so many people really are. Oh, absolutely. I'm we can go a little bit darker with that too. I mean, one thing I'm trying to figure out right now is, you know, I care a lot about Social Security, especially as I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of doesn't seem as far away as it did when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, what I'm looking at in the next election cycle is a choice between a candidate. Who, is, who has tried in the past, every time he's had the opportunity to cut Social Security. And we have another cat, another candidate equal, would probably be just fine cutting Social Security and happy to privatize the shit out of it. But now that he's attached his ego to it, now that he's gone out in public and said, there's no fucking way in hell I'm going to cut Social Security, now all of a sudden, you know, it's become one of his little standoffs and Trump famously guns on these kinds of things. So do I really consider the idea that Trump might be better, might be the more sensible choice on the issue of Social Security if I care about it still being there in a few years? And well, Biden, I mean, to counteract that, I'm not saying I am. I'm not going to vote for Trump. No, okay? no, 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 I know you're not. I'm not going to patronize you in that way. I, I do feel like, I do feel like I wouldn't, I, just like Biden has lied about his record on Social Security, Trump has lied about, like, the, in 2016, he, he ran saying he was going to protect Social Security and then went well in office, made some shady efforts to try to cut it. So I, yeah. I kind of think they're both capable of lying, you know, posturing like they want to protect the program and then reneging. What I would say that puts Trump ahead a little bit and take this with a grain of salt is that when Trump moves to cut Social Security, liberals scream and holler and dump their chests and make it politically inconvenient. When Biden, when a mainstream Democrat does it, everyone is silent. Remember Obama tried this, and that's Mm -hmm. why Bernie threatened to run in 2012. Joe Biden had the commission, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know. No, that was earlier. Never mind. Yeah. I mean, they tried to use this as a cudgel against Bernie in in 2020, saying, oh, you know, you once tried to run against the first black president because you're a racist. But if you really... Remember, it was because by uh, he was saying, if you try to, if you threaten Social Security, I'm going to run against you and scream it to the high heavens. And so uh, Obama backed off. So, like, I, I, am, I am a little concerned, especially since, you know, Bernie is playing such ball with the Democrats these days. 
that like if someone's gonna lie and say they protect social security and then renege, I'd rather that person be a conservative because at least there'll be a media cycle about it then. I know that's so cynical. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I wish I could argue with you. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. can't really do that. Yeah. What do you what do you make about all of this um how to how to how to exploit the primary discourse? Well, you know what it's sort of related to is I'm I'm finding that I'm really kind of fed up with the um with with, with the people's fixation on moral victories. I mean, and I like to be right as much as anybody else does, right? But I sort of see a through line to the place where we are with, you know, people being so unwilling to support Marianne. And someone like a Cenk Uger or a Sam Cedar being willing, unwilling to support force the vote. Mm-hmm. And that's because it seems to me that there's a component on those part of those people too. They really want, sincerely want Medicare for all, but they're not, they just take it by stealth. Something mm-hmm. like, um, something like force the vote feels underhanded to them. And they want to stand up. They say the majority of Americans are on our side. They want to stand up. They want to proclaim that to the heavens and they want to claim that victory and pound their chest. Mm-hmm. I think people are doing the same thing with Marianne right now in your chat. And uh, because because what it what it what it comes down to is an inability to form any kind of alliance because you can't look at things issue by issue and say yeah I agree with you on these and I can't I don't on those. And I kind of think it's the, I think it's the fixation on the moral victory. I, I think I think we really need to be a lot more pragmatic. I hate to say as a left, I feel pretentious saying something prescriptive like that, but I try to be pragmatic. And you know if I I agree with Marianne on more than 60% of the issues, but if it was only 60%, she'd still be. Right. So yeah, why like would I, I, an alliance on that 60%? And, and I truly get the argument that like 60% isn't good enough to sheep her people back in the Democratic Party or to validate the status quo or, you know, but to me, those are arguments that we can have in the general election. Right. In the primary, <laughs> like I just, I don't, I don't know how many how- ways to say it. In the in the primary, what is the downside? I said this with force the vote too, right? Like I can't promise you it's gonna work. I can't promise you that there's gonna be like real tangible benefits to Marianne or um, RFK Jr. running in a primary. You know, this could be very ephemeral. They could end up embarrassing themselves in a way that hurts a lot. Like I can't promise you anything, but if you can't tell me what the downsides are, hell's bells, I don't know why we wouldn't try. Like, you should be throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, especially when you're as vulnerable and marginalized as the left is right now. Right. There's That's not a bigger I mean. platform in the country than a, than, a, than a presidential race. Right. No, I completely agree. And that's why I like Marianne specifically is because the more I think about her, it, because she's something different. She's definitely, I've seen left-wing firebrands before, you know, and, and frankly, I'll tell you, I'd gotten to the point where I kind of thought it was pointless too, but Bernie said 2016 kind of showed me otherwise, you know, so why would I, so if there's yeah. Is a point in trying again, then why not try again? The thing that gets me is that I feel like if Bernie ran a third term, that all the people that are complaining about, and, and, and like, I think that they're legitimate complaints, right? But all the people who are like, well, Marianne has a bad position on Israel and Marianne has a bad position on Ukraine would 100% fall behind Bernie with identical positions on Israel and identical positions on Ukraine. That's what bugs me. I, I, like, yeah. I don't actually think it's principled. Like, I can accept someone saying this is my litmus test, point blank, period. Like, I, I, res- I genuinely do respect that. And like, fine. Just I like do. I would respect if 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 Shama and, and Chris Hedges were like, I just think fundamentally participating in any aspect of the Democratic race 
validates that institution in a, in, in a way that is uh, irresponsible and that we should be collectively withholding our votes and trying to draw, drive down voter participation in democratic contests, point blank periods, so that we can make the case that there are too many disaffected Americans and we need our own party. Like, I don't know that I agree strategically with that, but like as a principled approach, I get it and I wouldn't argue with it. But saying, oh, I don't think you should sit it out, but also don't vote for Marianne and we're not going to do anything at all. We're not going to message around this at all. Like, we're just going to say what we don't like and not what we affirmatively do like. That's just a waste of everybody's time. We all like it or not. Every single person in the left media sphere is going to be talking about this primary. And we're not going to be talking about organizing or any third parties because nobody's organizing or doing a third party. (laughs) Do it and I promise you I'll do a show on it. Do it. Tell me what third party candidate is running. Tell me who the Green Party's candidate is going to be, and I'll have them on tomorrow. Like, truly, I love that. But like, I can't make that happen. Like, I'm not the guy. I'm a comms person. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not the one. And by the way, I hope that everyone has that little box checked on their tax form that they want $3 to go to the election matching fund. I'll bet half the chat right now, Marlon, Marianne, doesn't have that checked. For matching Tell funds. Us about the check. I don't even know that I have the check. What, there's just, there's a little box at the top of the tax form. It says something really kind of anodyne, like, do you want three or five dollars of this to go to some federal election fund? You yeah. know, and of course people leave it unchecked, but it doesn't actually change the amount of tax. It's not like you pay an extra five bucks, but you allocate five bucks of it to that. Oh, interesting. What that is, that's the, that's the pool of money that um, federal matching funds for a well for any political party come from. Used to be for all of them. Now it would just be for third parties. But yeah, so check that box. Because what the hell check else the are they going to do? A fucking missile? I wish the third parties, you know, what I really liked in 2016 is uh, Jill Stein really messaged hard about the like federal matching funds point. I thought that was such a persuasive argument. I wish they would talk more about that, you know, in addition to the quality of the candidate. But those are compelling arguments for folks who feel like it's a wasted vote otherwise. And I, I wish there was more of that. So thank you for bringing that up. I don't even know that I knew about that. Check the box. Thank you, Aaron. Brady says that he's working on something, so I'm going to call on Brady next, and then Thank maybe we're going to get out of here. Thank Thanks you, Aaron. Have. Keep the faith. Thank you for having such a fantastic voice. <laughs> all right, Brady, I see you all caps in the chat. What are you working on? What should we know about, my friend? Hey, back in 2016, when it was like Hillary in the election, I, out of desperation, I started uh, my own party called the People Party. And then, you know, it, name kind of got co-opted so i changed it to the proxy party mm. and it turns out there's another guy named peter monion who you should totally talk to if you can reach out to his his link is in the the link that i put in the chat there's a link to his stuff in the chat in the, there's a link to his stuff in the that? link that i put in the chat <laughs> so his name Monian? is peter monion and he wrote a book how do you spell monion uh, about, yeah about wait no potential hey how do you spell <laughs> can you spell monion for me yeah, can do. And he calls it a proxy party, which um, is a really good idea I've kind of expanded on. And what I'm hoping to do is make it, I have a really good definition as well. <clears throat> Let me just read the definition and then I'll get his name for you. But okay. it's a proxy government is a model to challenge false dichotomies, synthetic leadership by transparently providing universal basic needs with efficient and novel forms of one to one voluntary democracy. So he went ahead and laid out the groundwork for all the math involved in like hitting the ground running with a party. 
and I'm kind of working on platform ideas. So right now I'm just collecting platform ideas and any potential candidates that might want to run independently on the proxy party as a way to kind of get around um, ballot access issues. We're encouraging people to write it, to run as write-in candidates as much as possible. And we're encur- I'm encouraging everyone to run for everything, like run for everything from president all the way down to uh, your local school board and just take whatever you can get. You know, a lot of the positions are going unchallenged. Mm-hmm. And I think that literally anyone in this room almost would be better than Marianne Williamson. I think it's pathetic that these are the options we're being presented. Um, I th- I'm confident that anyone in this room could do better than the last two presidents, the last three presidents, possibly. So why then um, do you think that nobody has run... Like we've had, again, four, three years to contemplate who the alternative writing candidate, I mean, not writing candidate, but like, you know, draft X person is. And I, I, started, I, I asked Margaret Kimberly this today, who's your fantasy candidate? Who would you like to see? Blah, 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 blah. And people are like some combination of reluctant to name names or I don't know what that is. But, but to me, there's a connection between people's unwillingness to get behind let's say Marianne or get behind anyone it feels like everyone is reluctant to because everyone's so flawed of course people are flawed and it feels like folks feel like their own left legitimacy is going to be questioned if they get behind anyone at all who doesn't seem sainted and perfect and Bernie it seems is the only one who passes the one true Scotsman test of a leftist because of vibes not even because of principle because we all know the ways in which even Bernie could be argued was insufficient so like that's that's what I think it is. Like no one wants to draft anybody because they'll be perceived as, oh, you want to draft Matthew Ho? Well, he once said that uh, you know, he he it doesn't think we should entirely defund the military, so he sucks. Oh, yeah, I saw him not recycle last week, so he sucks. You know, like everyone has something that they've said at some point, and because no one wants to be accused of having complete identity of interest with whoever they support, no one will support anybody, and so the left continues to flail. So I, I I love that. Like, fine, write in campaigns, draft whomever. But, like, that's a great argument for the general. If someone said to me, Brianna, I don't think you should vote for any of these candidates in the general election because I think they're these write-in candidates that people shouldn't be using their votes on, great. But I don't feel I don't that affects that. the primary choice. We should collectively put a platform together that we could all stand behind and then literally just – we could write a contract that holds someone liable to actually enact that platform or else they have to step down and we can create proxy candidates. I don't don't know that that sounds especially enforceable. Unassassinatable candidate. They couldn't assassinate our candidates because we could just replace them with literally anyone else at that point. Um, As long as they stick to the, to the uh, contract or the, the party platform. And Um, I think that it would be good to form a party as kind of like a proxy government outside of government, just so we could start using it as a network for mutual aid. Um, So just presuming that we don't win the election, which is highly likely, um, all of the campaign contributions are not going to advertising or anything like that. They're all going 100 percent towards uh, mutual aid projects that have been democratically elected by members of the party or by anyone. We could even open up to anyone. We could open it up globally if we wanted to. Um, but lots of ideas, so much to talk about. I don't know how to fit it all into a quick 10 minute clip, but the, yeah, Brady, the you gotta, right, I'll write Peter name for you. And then, um, what, what is the person's name? Up. Please don't like, I'm telling you, I'm not going to click on the 
the link in the chat. I'm not going to post this episode, go back through an hour plus of chat. I just, I'm begging you, please tell me how to spell this person's last name so I can write it in my notes app. Right at the top of the chat. (laughs) Right at the top of the chat. A little bit French. Can you say the letters for me in in a row and spell it for me, please? Thank you. Peter M O N I E N. I believe that's it. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to fact check myself real quick, but I appreciate your time. Okay. I appreciate you too. And Keep the vape. If anyone has any good ideas or any good candidates, just throw them my way. We'll do an interview and make it happen. Okay, great. Thank you for calling in, Brady. Um, Eric, what's on your mind tonight? Hello, can you hear me? Eric? Hey, buddy. What's on your mind? Oh, no. I didn't hear you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the last caller with the name thing was made me. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sounds like like you guys are gaslight. You're like you're just. <laughs> it's like there's like a strategy. You guys have a pre-calling call to figure out how you're gonna trigger me into losing my mind. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was very uh, I've been a Costello moment there for me for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> All but, right, um, what's what's up with you today? Real quick, what's on my mind? I really did enjoy the. Uh, conversation today with your guest but i really i mean i really want to talk about the video you posted i think it was over the weekend with the um i believe she was a parent at the uh i guess it was like a parent conference or a pta meeting mm-hmm. um with the what's it called the ladies of liberty and just the way mm-hmm. the, i believe i believe the parent was some, a member of NAACP, but the way she handled that conversation Mm-hmm. And how I, I believe impactful and uh, uh, necessary it was to deal with the conversation in that way. Because even though in the conversation she talks about, because this, uh, who don't know, this is a, um, a video of a PTA meeting, and there was a woman, a black woman uh, from AACP, I believe she's like a, one of the president of charters in the AACP uh, in her area. And they were having um, a discussion about diversity and inclusion in the public school system. Mm-hmm. And just the level of calmness mm-hmm. and seeming of grace that she was giving to the woman mm-hmm. and the question that she asked and mm-hmm. allowed her, even though she said it wasn't a doctor, it just, made, it just showed you how, in some case, some of these people are parents who are trying to infiltrate the... Um, these particular boards, elected boards for um, public education, really don't know and can't mm-hmm. explain what they are fighting against. Mm-hmm. I think that too many liberals think it's dangerous. Like they're so afraid of a conservative person speaking their beliefs out loud. Like they think that there's it's going to have like a psychic power to manifest reality if they say whatever their belief is out loud. That in interview uh, context or debate context, they don't actually want to give them space to say what they believe. But I believe there's a lot of power in asking someone to articulate what they're afraid of and why. For the reasons that we saw in that clip and for what we saw in the Beth- Bethany Mandel clip, and the reasons that we saw, I think, in the interview that I just did with Mar- Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene. If you're not afraid of what Marjorie Taylor Greene has to say, you know, if you recognize that she said it before, she's gonna say it again, the words themselves don't have all this power, and you just let her b- say what she believes and have confidence in your own point of view and your ability to contest it, 
then you become the most powerful person in the world. And for those people who haven't seen that clip, she asked her, and it wasn't a gotcha, she said it calmly, she said it, I think, earnestly. What is it about the CRT that you are afraid of, that you, you think that you are objecting to? And the parent says, and the parent, like, it was, it was clear that she felt unsteady talking about it, that she was a little embarrassed, that she was worried about getting dragged. But she said, you know, I'm concerned that my white kid, my white child, might be made to feel bad about who they are because of what they're learning in class. And while a bunch of other people might have jumped down her throat and said, well, how dare you? My black child also feels bad. And like, your little white child deserves to have to learn about what your people did and da 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 Which emotionally, I understand where you're coming from. I'm not telling you how to feel. But what that parent said instead is, one, like, I also don't want your child to feel bad because of what some white person 100 or 200 years or 50 years ago did. And that's not the goal of these lessons. And to the extent that that is an effect of these lessons, I think that's worth the conversation. None of the children should be feeling bad about who they are because of what anybody else who isn't them did, of course. So let me assuage that fear. Let me ally that fear. But what is also true is there is real history that needs to be learned. And sometimes these historical figures have a mix of good and bad things. And what is happening in effect is a censorship of the bad things because of this argument that me saying that Thomas Jefferson held slaves somehow means your little seven-year-old white boy is like a genocidal maniac, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And like, I felt in that exchange that the parent legitimately had her concerns addressed. The parent has been lied to as well, right? The white parent has been lied to as well about what is going on in the classroom. And I do think there probably are some fringe cases where teachers have taken things too far and said like white people are responsible for X, Y, and Z in a way that I don't think is frankly appropriate for the classroom or elsewhere. But instead of having that conversation too too often, we're afraid that if we let that white parent say the words, uh, you know, that she said, that, so, that so, somehow she'll win. And the opposite is true. So often when they just are allowed to expose what they really believe, there's some obvious fa- fa- fallacy in it that you can easily just contradict. Or with the Marjorie Taylor Greene interview, she admitted things that were much more damaging to her own reputation than anything that I could have said in a gotcha. She admitted she's pro-war spending. She admitted that she's unwilling to cut taxes for the rich and that she'd rather cut social programs for the poor to balance the budget than ca- cut taxes for the rich. She admitted that she has absolutely no plans to actually defund the, D- the FBI and that she's made no advancements on legislation. And it's so far, it's just a talking point. She admitted all of that and not because I yelled and screamed with her. It's because I asked her to justify her own beliefs. Yeah. And I think what's important in having conversations with um, a level of, of um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I guess the word is grace, but I think the word would probably be more like allowing people to say exactly what they believe and see if, you know, what comes out their mouth. Because even in that conversation at the PTA, if she say to you, she said, okay, what exactly do you uh, uh, things is going to happen, and let's mm-hmm. say she said some really racist stuff. Well, mm-hmm. now we could, it, now we know. Now it's out yeah. there, and, yeah. and I, I truly believe that we are at a point in time where, because I think you can kind of see it. What happened with the um, holding that went on with the abortion uh, 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 in this past election, and how because it was such an extreme that the right was having, there was a counter balance to that, that even some, you know, conservative and quote-unquote conservative independents backlash towards that because it's like, oh, you want to get rid of um, 
uh, contraceptives. You want to get mm-hmm. rid of, you know, uh, six weeks. Because at the end of the day, guess what? You know, independence and conservative like to have unprotected sex too. <laughs> they don't want to get rid. So I think even if that woman, that parent, had said something as extreme as what we think she might actually believe, mm-hmm. I just think that would just help our cause even more. Yep. Hundred percent. I think that's a really important insight, Eric. Hundred percent. I think it's a good it's a good uh, uh, lessons for other liberals and other leftists to not all like listen. There's a time and there's a place, you know, when we're all in our little like you know leftist you know podcast where we can you know have at it. And we can go off and we can do all that type of stuff. But we also have to recognize that when we're in a space that is more um, not necessarily inclusive but more general. Mm-hmm. We have to be, uh, uh, there's a way to show, to have like leftist principles. Mm-hmm. Even I think there's a way to talk about socialism without using the word socialism. Mm-hmm. That can be very attractive to the general audience because I mm-hmm. think there's elements of socialism that we all ascribe to. We just don't know it yet. A hundred percent. And that goes back to Lewis's point about um, the postal service as well. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah, that's just the one thing I, I truly believe, like when could you even talked about a little bit so far with some of the, the guests on this to call in is that one of the areas that um, I find that the left is the leftist area, the true like um, when I talk about, I mean, you know, not liberals, but actual leftists who have like a, a critique of at the very least a critique of capitalism are missing mm-hmm. that calms aspect. They were mm-hmm. not on, at the very least on the foundational page and yeah. it's and it's becoming to the point everything is a uh, 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 well this leftist said this one thing that I podcast for that I don't like so now I need to make like 10,000 videos about why they're grifter or why they're not really a leftist. Yeah just have a little grace you know it's like here's the thing I'll just I'll start to say some names just a little bit for this section. As much as I will admit that it frustrates me that it, it feels I'm not saying it is I'm not I'm not trying to put words in their mouth but it feels to me subjectively, and I could be wrong, like a little bit of a misalignment of priorities, what some of these shows are doing with respect to, like, I reach out to Shama, I have a very good relationship with Shama, I have her on my show to debate points of disagreement, and they're like, oh, Shama dunks on Brianna, it's like, no, I, this is my guest, it's my show, (laughs) like, why are you acting like I didn't set this up because I wanted to work through, like, I respect her opinion. I'm platforming her because I think that people should hear her point of view, even though it's different than mine. Why are you making this like a battle royale instead of engaging respectfully with the idea that I think is good enough to platform, even if I disagree with it? Like, why are we doing that? And maybe one video, like, it's not like, you know, Sadie's disagreed with me. People have disagreed with me. That's okay. But I think there's a way you do it, you know? Sabby disagreed with Marianne in that interview that, that, that they did. And, you know, they did it, she did it in a way that I think was a little bit more constructive than maybe some of the, you know, and I don't mean to tone police anybody and people can run their shows the way they want. All I'm saying is that I think that everyone could be offering everyone a little bit more grace up until the point that they think they can make a really strong argument for why not doing so is to the detriment of the left. Just the detriment. Like, if you think that someone's really hurting our interests, go all in. But, like, as much as I disagree with Sam Cedar, like, I don't, like, 95% of what he says on his show, I agree with. And I'm so glad that he has a platform for people who are listening to that. You know? I don't, like, there are things, I know that people wish I would maybe criticize Jimmy Dore or Glenn or somebody more. But, like, 
I'll, I'll criticize the things that happen that come up and I'd rather do it to people's faces instead of talking about their backs in a way that I feel like is a little ugly, especially when you have a personal relationship with folks. But like, you know, as long I think it's good that Glenn's out there talking about how horrible it was that the White House Correspondents Center doesn't talk about Julian Assange. I think it's good that Jimmy Dore does content after content. He's one of the few big name accounts who still is visibly angry about the fact that no one's talking about Medicare for all because it's deeply personal to him. And like, as I can say I disagree with his take on that or his take on that, but like we could all just be doing that in a way that shows each other a little grace, unless unless you somewhat think that someone is genuinely hurting the left interest, then we need to talk about it. And I know that there's been some stuff said with some of the people that I just mentioned, and I'm I'm working, I would love to have a debate with Alex Katsanis and Glenn Greenwald about some, and Lee Fong about some of this criminal justice stuff, which I strongly disagree with both Lee and Glenn about, strongly. But I, because, you know, I think it's more productive, I'm going to try to get them all on the show together and we can say what our disagreements are to each other's faces in a way that is more comprehensive, detailed, and reasonable in a way that does that might have the ability to convince people instead of pushing folks more into their respective corners. That's it. I want I want to be able to never get to a, a point of temperature where we can't dialogue with each other because our community is too small for us not to be able to get into a room and have a conversation without things getting so personal. Sorry. Oh, he exited himself. I don't know if that was intentional, but no, that's perfect timing because we've been going for an hour and a half. The sun is going down. I am going to turn back to my friends and start the evening portion of today's events. I see people in the chat. It ended up being a kind of a deep bench today. I appreciate you calling in at this unorthodox hour. Haven't talked to you in a while, Jonathan. I haven't, a turtle, I've seen you in the queue a bunch and I haven't called on you, so I'm going to call in turtle. Ruben, I've seen you in the queue a bunch and I haven't called on you. I'm going to call on you next time. Grant, you look like a new face. I would love to call on you, excuse me, call on you in the future, so I hope you call back in. Um, Old Trek, I saw you had some interesting things to say in the chat, and I'm very timid just to call on you because I wanted to know what you had to say. But I'm going to choose me. Joshua, I appreciate you. I'm going to choose me and, like, go back to my vacation. But thank you all for listening. Apologies for the mix-up on the episode today. I'll see you all on Thursday for an episode that I think you'll really enjoy. Um, continuing some of the conversation about bricks and multipolarity with an extremely knowledgeable guest that ended up being a two part, a two hour conversation. So it's going to be another two party parter. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I'm so ignorant about that topic that I was very grateful that he just kind of walked me through it like a little baby. And I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So take care of yourselves. Keep the faith. I'm not going to sing the outro song, although I am tempted. (laughs) Um, Take care of yourselves. You guys are great. Bye-bye.